Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. I am your host, Mark Melton. In today's episode, we will speak with Matt Gobush about the Obama Doctrine and a concept he calls moral multilateralism. In the spring 2016 issue of Providence's print edition, Gobush wrote about this idea and what implications it would have for America's foreign policy. A link to this article is provided on the podcast page, which can be found at providencemag.com slash podcast. There's also a link to an article from the same issue by Providence's managing editor, Mark Levecki, who is more critical of Obama's foreign policy than Gobush. I strongly recommend listeners go back and read both articles, even though they draw very different conclusions. In my experience, it is quite helpful to read opposing views on the same topic to develop a more holistic vision. My hope is that policy recommendations drawn from this type of vision will benefit our country more than those without it. Previously, Matt Gobush served on the staff of the National Security Council in the Clinton White House, the U.S. Department of Defense, the U.S. Senate, and the U.S. House of Representatives International Relations Committee. He also served as chairman of the Episcopal Church's Standing Commission on Anglican and International Peace with Justice Concerns. He currently works in the private sector and lives in Dallas, Texas. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, whether through iTunes, SoundCloud, or elsewhere. Please leave a comment on iTunes since this will help more listeners find the podcast. If you have any comments, tweet at us at Prov Magazine. Also, be sure to visit our website, ProvidenceMag.com. While at our website, you can subscribe to our print edition for only $28 a year and receive future issues as they are published. Again, I'd like to give special thanks to Joseph Rossell for producing this episode. So Matt, in your article, you wrote about the responsibility to protect or R2P. Could you describe that concept a little bit for us? Sure. R2P, the responsibility to protect, is really a, a norm, an emerging norm in international politics, international governance that had its roots in the year 2000-2001 following the Kosovo conflict, following the genocide in Rwanda in the mid-90s, and a sense that we can't let that happen again, right? And what can be done as an international community to address those kinds of humanitarian crises that challenge notions of sovereignty, right? These are humanitarian disasters taking place within uh, sovereign states. What can the international community do to try to address those? And what are the responsibilities, both of those sovereign states and of the international community as a whole, to address humanitarian disasters? So the R2P concept was born 2000, 2001, a body in Canada was convened under, I think, UN auspices to investigate the matter and develop a proposal. What emerged was R2P, and if you look closely at that, and Jill Conti has spoken about this on some of his blog posts too at Providence, you really have in R2P some of the essential elements of classical just war doctrine, right? The responsibility of sovereign states to maintain general order at some level and also to protect innocent lives. R2P, if you see some of the criteria involved and some of the concepts, they they very closely track traditional notions of what just war is. Okay, so to talk a little bit about your article in the print edition on moral multilateralism, you describe how you define Obama's doctrine. Would you like to explain this doctrine? Sure. First question, does Obama have a doctrine, right? And I think a lot of, as I argue in my piece, Many of his supporters have said there doesn't seem to be a particular doctrine that President Obama has authored during his presidency, and certainly many of his critics have said he doesn't have a coherent doctrine, or if he does, that it's one that's either passive, leading from behind, say, or even, as I argue, sort of profane, like, don't do stupid stuff. 
and another choice word was used for stuff in that context, right? So he's come under lots of criticism for perhaps not having a doctrine. Based on my research and my following the matter, I actually think he does have something and something really that's important and significant. And that was something that he spoke about at a very, I think, pivotal speech at West Point in May of 2014. This speech was a long time coming. Over the course of his presidency, these ideas began to emerge. You first saw some initial signs of an Obama doctrine in his speech that he gave at Oslo in, in accepting the Nobel Peace Prize. And it really kind of culminated in this West Point speech in 2014. And he specifically, I'll paraphrase a bit, President Obama said that the United States will use military force unilaterally if necessary when our core interests demand it. But when issues of global concern that do not pose a direct threat, the threshold for military action must be higher. We should not go it alone. And I saw in that statement a very definitive set of criteria for when U.S. military force ought to be used. And then that's how I look at doctrine, by the way. Traditional interpretation of what a doctrine is, not necessarily a grand geostrategic vision of the world, but rather kind of a narrow formula in some respects that gives clear indication of the circumstances under which the United States might use military force. And so I saw in that West Point speech, uh, Obama's doctrine, I saw something I think that is uh, new, that's different, that's really profound, and some levels praiseworthy, but also flawed. I think there's some flaws in it as well. So in your article, you talked about a double-edged sword and then a two-sided shield. And I think that kind of gets to the crux of how you see his vision. Do you want to explain those two concepts? Sure. The double-edged sword, as I put it, really speaks to the ways in which, not to overdo the analogy, but one edge of that sword, as I see it, of the Obama doctrine is the use of unilateral force. And the president is very clear that when our core interests demand it, he would have been prepared to use unilateral force. On the other edge of that sword, however, is this idea of multilateral use of force. And this really gets to the heart of what's distinctive about the Obama doctrine, I believe, that other edge. And that's under what circumstances, what's that higher threshold for the use of multilateral force? And he suggests that when it's not a direct interest of the United States, maybe important, but not a direct one, then that we're really obligated to work with others to achieve that. So those were the two edges of the sword. The shield concept, as I have it, which I really introduced at the end of the piece, speaks to, on the one hand, that this doctrine is a shield. It's meant to deflect and use as a tool for defense, right, the use of military force. But on the other respect, that shield is a mirror, looking at it from the other side, looking at it from those that are holding it. That shield is a reflective mirror that forces us to look at ourselves. And this gets to, I think, the crux of the moral content of multilateralism. Many times when people criticize Obama, they usually bring up Syria and they describe it as a failure and there's different things with that. There's the red line. It's become much more than just the word red line. It means so much now. And also Libya are brought up too. Do you want to respond to any of those criticisms or would you agree with any of those? Yes and no. I believe that the Syria crisis, and it truly was a, a crisis, it's a, a real moral stain on President Obama's presidency and I think on United States foreign policy. The, the crisis in Aleppo really rivals that of Rwanda almost, if not in scale, at least in just the level of the tragedy there that could have been averted. But let me say, in the case of Syria, I think that, as I argue in the piece, 
The president did reference in this press conference a red line. It did not seem to be at the time necessarily all that deliberate of a declaration. As we know in the course of events over the course of a year, that Assad did cross that red line and the United States had indicated they were willing to use force. The president seemed poised to do so. And then in the 11th hour drew back. And, and that concept is one that has puzzled many of his supporters and also really enraged many of his critics. I will say Mark Levecki had a great piece, I think that kind of mirrored mine in that issue of the providence of my piece where he made a very strong criticism of the president in that regard and about the importance of credibility. I will say it's important, though, from a just war perspective, as important as credibility and legitimacy and saying what we mean and meaning what we say is in terms of U.S. leadership, and I do believe that, following up on your actions and following up on your rhetoric and ensuring that when you say you're drawing a red line that you keep that red line really isn't a causes belly, right? It is not in and of itself justification for going to war simply to back up what you said. And I think we have to look at it critically. The president is certainly, I think, open to criticism for that language. He admitted as much in a 60 Minutes interview recently that that was probably more than he meant to say or should have said. But that doesn't necessarily, in and of itself, in my view, invalidate his actions or the administration's policy towards Syria, which in the end, as we know, for better or for worse, did lead to Assad disarming and, and forfeiting his chemical weapons stock pretty successfully. One of the things I've heard a lot about Obama while being in D.C. and then elsewhere in the country is this idea of overreacting back and forth, going from being overly proactive using the military force under George W. Bush to not using it, and this kind of pendulum going back and forth. And one of the things I've heard Obama criticized for is a fear of using force. And whenever he does, he wants to know what's the end game, which I feel like he, when I read about his comments in Syria, I hear that a lot, is him asking, well, what happens at the end? In Libya, I don't know if he should have spent more time looking at what was going to happen at the end, but, oh, let me rephrase that, he should have, I think. And... In that, do you see a fear in Obama to use force? Well, from my perspective, and I am admittedly a defender of and supporter of the president, so take it with that in account, but I certainly don't see a fear for the use of force. I think President Obama really grappled with the gravity and the importance and weighing the real power of the U.S. military and how it can be used. And when he saw a core interest that was being impacted or a core interest that was threatened, he really didn't hesitate to use force. More of this was seen in the perhaps the first term than the second term, but it's hard to argue that President Obama was fearful of the use of military power when you look at the, was arguably one of the most courageous and high stakes decisions about the use of force any president has faced, which was the operation to capture and eventually kill Osama bin Laden. That was a clear application of U.S. military power to achieve an objective regardless of the consequences. It might be the international politics or the rest. He wanted to go in and achieve that objective. He knew that was a core interest of the United States and really didn't hesitate. Having said that, he certainly was shaped by the experience of his predecessor. He came to office in part because he was perceived as the anti-war candidate. He was very critical, not alone in this, but very critical of U.S. operations in Iraq. And I think there's no doubt that shaped his view of the use of force. So fear is not the word I would use. 
a sense of gravity that he associated with that? Absolutely. And he was not one to act rashly. He was not one to act precipitously. He was not one to act learning from Iraq without consideration of the consequences. But despite perhaps how his critics might portray him, I don't believe President Obama was fearful of using military force. One of the things I feel that the Russian intervention showed us is that military intervention could have had some effect on the ground. And I feel sometimes that Obama was doubtful of that. But when we look at what Russia did, they had, I believe, at most 40 aircraft, whether it's fighter bombers or helicopters or some other type of vehicles there, plus around, I believe, about 3,000 personnel supporting those troops. And they were working with you know forces we do not particularly like, whether it's Hezbollah, Iran, or Assad. But with that combination, they were able, fairly cheaply, to have an impact on the ground. Now, I feel that you could have a debate over could American intervention had a positive impact in the opposite, or what would have been the result or what would have been the goal at the end of the day with American-led military intervention or a more forceful intervention than what we have done, especially through the arming of rebels. But do you think that there could have been some military option that would have been effective? Well, I certainly think that, yes, military force could have an impact. And the Russians, to a certain degree, demonstrated that. Let's be mindful of the fact that part of that military impact was dropping barrel bombs over Aleppo, right? Part of that military impact was in the service of arguably morally reprehensible work. The burden on those that are trying to do good or trying to resolve uh, a humanitarian disaster is probably higher in some respects for military force than those that are trying to aggravate it or worsen it. So could military options have an impact? Yes. Question is, what impact would they have? I will say that in the administration's defense, one impact that military force would not have had had we used it was disarming Assad of his chemical weapons. In fact, military force could have had the consequence of actually worsening that, right? Of Assad resorting to wider use of those chemical weapons. So yes, military force can have an impact. I would argue that in the case of Aleppo, when you had a humanitarian disaster, that we had an obligation and a responsibility to protect those innocents and do what we can to prevent that. Although the president may not openly admit it, he too would regret that humanitarian disaster. We didn't take decisive action to do something to prevent that. But nonetheless, I do think there are both positive impacts that military force can use and, and negative impacts. And weighing the two, it was a very difficult, I think, choice. I think also if the objective was to maintain international order, right, to alleviate humanitarian suffering, to provide some degree of stability that was in our interests in Syria, but also maintain international order. I think that was the impulse in part behind the pains he took to try to find multilateral support, right? And this is what I talk about in my piece. He would look to the British, whether or not they would support military action in Syria at the time. The parliament said no. He looked to Congress in this country, right? Domestic sort of multilateral support, as it were. And the Congress of, of the United States was not prepared at that time to authorize military forces. I think even its strongest proponents, Senator McCain and others, would readily say there weren't the votes. So he had to balance a lot of different interests. I think he made, in some ways, his best effort to do so. I think ultimately he failed. I think Syria is a moral stain. But nonetheless, I think that it does show and demonstrate 
both there were alternatives, he had to weigh those alternatives, and ultimately chose not to use military force. That achieved some things, it achieved the disarmament of Syria, but at the same time, it may have led to the humanitarian disaster of Aleppo. We are talking about Obama's doctrine and a debate over whether or not there is a doctrine. But I feel that sometimes there's a question over, is there a grand vision, a grand strategy? And I wonder also, if you have a doctrine without having a grand strategy, is there problems within that? that, that that's a great insight, Mark. Can a doctrine sort of be divorced from a grand strategy? And certainly, I think, at some level, really, it cannot, right? Because ultimately, the decision to use military force, I argue, is what a doctrine, a presidential doctrine, really gets to, is the real test of that grand vision that you might have. Where are the priorities? Geopolitically, where are U.S. national interests? Where are the interests of the international community? So at, at some level, I think, yes, the two can't be divorced from each other. Having said that, I think that what you had in President Obama and, frankly, to a degree, potentially, President Trump is someone that didn't necessarily see the world in ideological terms, but more in in philosophical terms, I would argue, but not ideological terms. He thought in a kind of a pragmatic, practical way, which doesn't lend itself necessarily to grand strategies, right? He was more about sort of crisis management, perhaps. I mean, he had elements of a grand strategy. The pivot to Asia is an example of that. A deliberate effort to recalibrate our engagement in the Middle East. You know, an opening to Cuba, the way in which he engaged Iran. These are all elements, too, of arguably a grand strategy. But in terms of a coherent, overarching, you know, containment strategy, say like the Cold War, right? Or a balance of power type approach to the world. I don't think his mind, his philosophical mind, his mind that is skeptical of overarching utopian or idealistic visions of the world, something that, you know, Reinhold Niebuhr, for instance, was critical of, right? Of becoming overly reliant or overly trusting of a worldview or a vision or a belief you have an answer. Right. I think in President Obama's case, my sense was he was not predisposed to think in terms of grand strategic terms, but more as a, a lawyer, case by case. His was sort of a common law approach to strategy, perhaps, and, and an incremental approach to strategy, not a civil law, as it were, approach to strategy in which that is sort of determined at the beginning and, and executed thereafter, if that makes sense. But, uh, but, but it's, a, it's a good point. Doctrines and strategies, how do they mesh? And I think with President Obama, you see that idea, that question really raised. He had a doctrine, but he didn't have necessarily that same sort of strategic vision. And as you were talking, I was thinking about Ian Bremmer's superpower book. I don't know if you read it or not, but he has an entire chapter talking about incoherent America. And he goes back to basically the end of the Cold War in that he talks about how like we don't have priorities over we will focus here and not here. I mean, we see that a little bit in Obama, like you said, with the pivot, but the pivot, there's questions over how much of a pivot there actually was because he was drawn back into the Middle East. But the idea of Asia Pacific so that China cannot just say, oh, Asia is not America's backyard when we can say, well, we have the Pacific too that we're concerned about. And so I think there's some debate over how much success there was for that. But I also wonder how... Because America is so powerful, we have massive military, we have great capabilities, even compared to our near peers, so to speak, and we haven't had to decide 
what we want to actually budget. Once things become more difficult, like in the Cold War, all of a sudden you have to budget better. Do you think challenges will force America to set up priorities better? Great question, Mark. You know, it's funny, we're in Washington and the old saw in Washington is that budgets are priorities, right? They really are. That's where the rubber hits the road. That's where you have to make the hard choices, where you have to confront the truths, where you're faced with sort of zero-sum games. There's a limited amount of resource, even in our prosperous economy, and you can't spend the same dollar twice, right? And so, absolutely, that's a very valuable insight. And how a president, how an administration budgets is, I think, very revealing of their priorities. I think that in the case of the Clinton administration, interestingly, that you know, some 20 years ago, we're going somewhat ancient history, but it was a period of relative prosperity, right? The economy was essentially, especially by, you know, today's standards, booming. We actually had a balanced budget, believe it or not, in the, you know, in the mid-90s, and it was a bipartisan achievement. And there's no question that that sense of economic strength and that we had our fiscal house in order at some level enabled, I think, President Clinton at the time to exercise more leadership on the world stage. And I think that it did enable, for instance, us to look beyond what was strictly in our immediate economic or security interests and think about that role as a global leader to leverage our economic strength and our moral strength to intervene in cases such as Kosovo and elsewhere. So I think that, you know, it's an interesting insight. We also have to recall that President Obama came to office some eight years ago at a time when we were economically in very desperate straits. You know, this was the Great Recession, as it were. And that sense that we needed to prioritize, speaking of prioritize, prioritize not so much wars in Iraq, wars in Afghanistan, but instead prioritize on this sort of nation building at home was understandable, I think, under those circumstances. Mark Levecki speaks in his piece about a, a doctrine of retreat. And with all due respect to my friend Mark, I think that's a little bit harsh because given the precarious financial situation we were and the budgets we were facing, our options were limited. Our ability to exercise that leadership in foreign policy was limited because of the economic situation we were in. And I think the president in some respects probably was right to make sure we got our house in order first before we overextend internationally. One other thing I thought about when I was reading your piece, especially when you were talking about that double-edged shield, the idea of the shield protecting us, not just from outsiders, but also from ourselves and hubris that you mentioned. The idea that when we act, we still sometimes act out of you know, selfishness or some other type of sinful desire. This idea of multilateralism forcing us to work with others to hopefully lead to a more moral action and outcome. Is that an accurate description? You I think? think so, yeah, right. And I think now Bigger had a good phrase for that, which was kind of increases the propensity for justice, mm -hmm. right? When you have more competing interests checking each other, it sort of checks and balances on an international multilateral mm -hmm. level that maximizes the chance that you'll get the right answer. <laughs> and I remember when I first read about that or read your piece when I was editing it for the print edition, I was reminded of the way America's government is structured, where there is a multilateralism on a national level between House and Senate and, you know, the three branches of government and so the idea of hopefully that there would be a more moral outcome and I believe you also quote Reinhold Niebuhr. Let me go back to the exact quote. The democratic techniques of a free society places checks upon the power of the ruler and administrator and thus prevent it from becoming vexatious. The perils of uncontrolled power and perennial reminds us of the virtues of a democratic society. 
I also think about the way our government is structured, where we also have an executive, where there is still someone of last resort to make decisions at times. The Congress will give the executive branch certain powers to execute the laws. And I wonder with the multilateralism, when we apply that to a global stage, like you mentioned the UN, we could talk about different bodies, but I don't quite see someone who is the agreed upon executive. In fact, there's no consensus on that. We could talk about how, oh, America should leave. Well, there's going to be Russians who would disagree. There would be others who disagree. I would say that would be probably my critique of that argument of the multilateralism when you apply it to a national or a global stage is that at some point you need a powerful actor to come in and to actually execute it. Does that make any sense? It do you, does. Do you have any con it does. And that? Yes, absolutely. And I do think that two things. First, there's that question of really political theory, right? That you have are the kinds of institutions and governance structures in a sovereign state, a closed system, one in which there is a, a monopoly over the use of force, theoretically, right? Versus a anarchic international system where there is no overarching authority. Can those institutions, those practices easily transfer? And I think the answer is yes and no, right? That in some respects it can, and there are ways to order anarchic international society, and there's ordering mechanisms, but ultimately it is you know, fundamentally chaotic and there's a limit to how much order you could achieve. There are some real practical challenges to multilateralism. There's no question about this. I talk about this in the piece. In fact, I criticize President Obama for using as a justification for multilateral action the practical benefits, right? He even adopts some language that we later heard from uh, candidate Trump when it came to the question of what multilateralism helps you achieve is to ensure there's no free riders, right? That, that everyone's got to pitch in, everyone's got to play a part. You're not going to simply achieve your ends on the backs of the United States that we all have to join into that. I actually am critical of that. I don't think multilateralism, first and foremost, should be the preferred approach because of its practical benefits, right? There are real practical limits to it. What I think multilateralism does is bring that moral strength to the issue, and that moral strength derives not just from safety in numbers, as it were, right, the more the better, but rather from the standpoint of that checks and balances, the way in which that deliberative process where we are taking our interests into account for sure, but we're also taking others' interests into account, and we show that you know, decent respect for the opinions of mankind and for others, that serves as a way as a check to prevent arguably the types of perhaps ill-considered actions such as the Iraq war. I, you know, I was supportive, frankly, but I think one has to say that the weapons of mass destruction were not found. That was an intelligence failure at some level. And could we have benefited from a more multilateral approach in that case or have that greater support? The practical benefits of multilateralism are limited. That's for sure. And you do have this accountability challenge, for instance, just the interoperability and the coordination challenge when you have multiple chains of command, for instance, can get complicated. Lots of practical challenges but in many instances, I think they're outweighed by the moral strength that's derived from having that broader consensus on what is right and maximizing the probability of justice, as Nigel Bigger would say. So, you know, I think there's real benefits there. Back to your point about order in the international society, we've got a separation of powers. And we've got an executive, a legislative, and a judiciary in our domestic political system. You can't have those same institutions at the international level right? Because you don't have that overarching power. And therefore, it's always going to be this hybrid between institutions, multilateral institutions, and understanding the value that they provide, but also knowing when 
ultimately someone's got to make the call. Someone's got to execute the action. Someone has the military wherewithal to actually get it done. More often than that, that's the United States. And that's Value where from an amid that anarchy, such as that captured with need. And I think that's reflected in the Obama doctrine. He makes clear that when it comes to core interests, we're not going to seek the approval of others. When it comes to non-core interests, there we're going to listen. And there we're going to take that into account. We're going to not act alone. So to finish up, I want to give you an opportunity. What do you think Obama's foreign policy legacy will be? Thanks, Mark. Needless to say, just like every president, and I was actually involved at the end of President Bill Clinton's administration where we were going through similar sort of debates and considerations of what President Clinton's legacy would be. It's a very popular Washington parlor game, right, to talk about, you know, legacy. So, you know, it's a mixed legacy, I think. Uh, Some wins, some losses. I think, you know, every president probably has to face that. But I think a parting point, and I think this is worth keeping in mind back to what I was saying earlier. This was one of our first philosopher presidents, and I think he brought regardless of his record on specific cases, I think the thoughtfulness, the deliberateness, the philosophy and the theology he in part brought to questions of how are drones to be used? What are the guidelines for that ethically controversial tool? Made real progress there. You look at his Nobel Prize speech and speaking of just war and his defense of war, I think there too he built some moral grounding. And ultimately too, he brought a certain dignity to the office. Here was a historic American president by any count, by just who he stood for. And that in and of itself, his the symbolism of his presidency was something that earned him the Nobel Peace Prize, rightly or wrongly, but it also, I think, earned for the United States standing and a certain respect worldwide given who he was. And ultimately, if you're one that watches the polls, the latest polls I've seen show that the American people, a majority of them, supported him on foreign policy in the end. That believe that, not by an enormous margin, but nonetheless, he was, uh, in a sense, taking us perhaps in the right direction. So maybe that would be the last word on the Obama legacy and the votes when they're cast. But And ultimately, as I say in the piece, the real test of a legacy is, does it last, right? And who will follow? And I think that we wait to be seen. But I wouldn't rule out that future administrations will see the wisdom and the value to an approach such as that captured within the Obama doctrine and this idea of moral multilateralism. Well, Matt, I want to thank you for coming in and speaking with us today. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. Thank you, Mark. uh, Thank you for writing for us and offering your perspective going all the way back from Clinton to today and everything else. So thanks again. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. 